Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 11. And this order of worship was built, I think, six weeks ago with next week's sermon in mind, but uh, providentially and uh, hindered from preaching one Sunday due to quarantine and happens to fit quite well uh, for the end of the sermon today. Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go. And tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now let's pray. Father in heaven, we do uh, ask that your spirit would be pleased to work even now. In opening your word to our mind, and opening our hearts to grow in faith, neither of these things are things we can do apart from him. And so we ask for your help, that Christ would be glorified. Amen. I think of the great privilege, I actually think of this with great regularity, the great privilege of growing up before the arrival of camera phones. 
Right? What a great privilege that was for me so that all of my most embarrassing moments, well, hopefully, they're my most embarrassing moments. I hopefully don't have any new ones stored up, but all of them were done prior to the arrival of these hateful little devices that can document it forever. One of my roommates in college, one of my favorite stories, it was back in the mid-90s, I guess, back when teenagers still went to the mall to just loiter and cause trouble, and noticed his friend walking with a group of friends on the other side of the mall, kind of walking away from him, and so he thought it would be funny to go tackle his friend in the middle of the mall. It would be an amusing thing that boys do to each other, I guess, I don't know. I think it was the point where he left his feet to tackle his friend in the dead center of the back. That was when he realized, why is my friend walking with a group of girls? And then he realized, I know he has long hair, but it doesn't have highlights like the person I'm about to obliterate. As they slid across the floor of the mall after he had tackled the young lady, he realized it wasn't his friend. It was a 17-year-old girl who was very confused and very angry. He stood up, to his credit, apologized, offered to help her up, and then went away in shame. Again, you can tell this was in the mid-90s. No police were called. It wasn't documented. He didn't go to jail for assault. But, oh, man, what an embarrassing moment. He's actually now the kind of lawyer you would call if you actually had to process a case of assault like that, ironically. I'm thankful for those kind of moments that we've all had, many of us at least, where things that would have mortified us for kind of everybody to know. And it's intriguing as I read passages like this because here you have what I suspect was the worst moment in John the Baptist's life and is one of the really two points that we have documented about who he is. We have his interaction with Jesus at the baptism where we get to hear him talk, and we have this one, and and really this is probably the low point of his life. If you remember, John the Baptist is a unique figure. He's one of the handful of figures that we know in the entirety of the Bible that we have God explicitly explaining is converted in utero. John never grows up not knowing who God is. He knows him from inside his mother's womb, even to the point where in Luke 2, where he comes and meets Jesus in the womb, the baby freaks out, right? John's like, "Ah, I'm in the presence of God, because even in the womb he knew Jesus is the Lord. As Matthew has been telling us the story, in Matthew chapter 3, this is where uh, John baptizes Jesus, and in that tremendous interchange, John makes uh, abundantly clear, there's no kind of qualms in John's mind. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is the Lord himself. That's why you have this brilliant interchange where John's like, "Um, we got the baptism backwards, friend, right? You're supposed to be baptizing me. I'm not supposed to be baptizing you. What, What are you doing? You don't need this. Interestingly, Matthew explicitly states at the end of chapter 3 there that John's ministry is a fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah had said, that he is a fulfillment of the one who would be the great preparer of God's path for the Messiah. 
Interestingly, though, the story kind of cuts out from there. We have to piece it together from the various gospels. We know a little bit more. Uh, Shortly after that baptism, not that long after it, actually, uh, John is uh, captured and imprisoned. He's imprisoned by King Herod Antipas, a terrible, terrible man. We know exactly where he was imprisoned. Uh, He was put in the fortress of uh, Machaerus, which, by the way, is a real place. We know exactly where it is. Uh, It's five miles to the east of the Dead Sea this morning. It was 53 degrees with a light wind blowing the dust across the land. I checked the weather just out of curiosity. In fact, we know uh, what had happened was uh, John had confronted the king about his divorce and remarriage along family lines that was exceedingly complicated and extremely icky, and the king didn't like it, and so he puts him in prison. He keeps him in prison for approximately two years, and in spoiling the story, about three chapters, he's going to have him executed. Well, one of the ladies is going to have him executed. The interesting thing in chapter 11 here, though, is this is where we get to see kind of at the low point of John's life, because at this point, John has most likely been in prison for quite some time, and even though he's imprisoned in one of Herod's palaces, it's not the kind of noble prison we might end up in today, right? American jails and prisons, though certainly not the kind of place I would like to spend an exceeding amount of time, it's far better than what most prisons were over the length of world history. You can imagine how he would have been uh, in tremendous kind of turmoil of mind, of turmoil of, of spirit, turmoil of body as he's broken down, as he's worn out, as he's exhausted and fatigued. And what we have here in the beginning of chapter 11 is in verse 2, he begins to doubt. He's hearing the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has spread out throughout the region. He's uh, building for himself a name, even though he's telling everybody around him to be quiet. Uh, And John hears about it, even so much so he hears about it in prison. And John begins to doubt. I mean, that's really what it is. There's no two ways around it. The grammar doesn't leave an option open. Uh, There are some commentators that would perhaps like to say, well, it's his disciples doubting. That's not the grammar, unfortunately. Matthew makes it clear. It's John that's struggling. John, the one who has known whom Jesus was from inside the womb, who is related to him, who knows the story. You know he would have heard it of the angels and the shepherds and the star and the... um, Magi, he he would have known all of that. But he begins to doubt. Even to the point where, uh, to his credit, rather than just stewing on it in silence, he sends his disciples, able to have some form of interaction with them, and sends them to go ask Jesus himself, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, that question for us is kind of perhaps a little bit of an odd grammar choice of how we would formulate that question today, but in the context of what he's asking, he's saying, look, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that's been prophesied from the entirety of the Old Testament? Are you the one that we've been looking forward to, or do we have to wait and wait for the next one, for the real one? Are you who God said you are? Are you the Christ. 
And I love how just kind of here from the very beginning, we get to see really a glimpse, uh, a true and accurate glimpse into the human heart. Uh, John the Baptist, we caught in the reading here a second, Jesus says is the greatest man that's ever lived. And I love how unbelievably human he is that here you have the greatest man that's ever lived, apart from the Lord Jesus, the greatest man that's ever lived, and he himself is overcome with doubt. I mean, overcome with doubt to the point that he's even beginning to wonder who Jesus is at all. And I think you could probably guess that there's two primary reasons why he's struggling with this kind of form of doubt, and I I think one of them is uh, extremely common for most of us, and it's when we hit intense suffering, when we run into intense pain, when we get into intense difficulty, that's when we begin to question, is God really who he said he is? Right? We never question God's goodness when we get a promotion, right? We never question God's goodness when our children have a week of unexpected, perfect behavior. Right on. We we never question God's goodness when we've just had a a great meal that was even better than we might have planned for it. We, We don't question God's goodness on those days very easily, do we? But give me a terrible stomach bug. Five hours later, right? I want to die. Is God actually good? I don't know which one I want first. It's amazing how easy it is to to take our faith and kind of deconstruct it and crumble it the moment that we run into tremendous difficulty. And honestly, we're going to be candid. Some of us in the room, this is our current mental status, isn't it? Some of us where whatever the struggle is that we're having, whether it be physical or spiritual, personal, whatever it is, a conflict with the spouse, a coworker that's making us crazy, where we begin to kind of let it leach into the back of our mind and say, well, is God really who he said he is? Is he really as good as he says he is? He says he's good from cover to cover of this book. He is goodness. Goodness is defined by God's character. That word doesn't exist apart from his character. He is what goodness is. But yet when I get hurting or frustrated or angry or sad, well, maybe not. And secondly, and I think this is closely related, this is the one I think we see a little bit more clearly here asked by John, is it's when Jesus doesn't line up with our own expectations, right? He, he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He's been told that his whole, whole life. He's known it from the very beginning. He's studied the Scripture. I mean, can you imagine that he's the Old Testament scholar studying the Scriptures, knowing who the Messiah is, just watching the ways that they're fulfilled by his relative. But in verse 3, we see the way he's asking the question. We're seeing that he's, he's really saying, look, the kind of Messiah that you are, Jesus, isn't matching what I expected. I've I've heard about your ministry, and I'm hearing about all the things that you're doing, but you're not doing the things that I want you to do, that I'm expecting you to do. It doesn't look the way I thought it would look. 
I mean, what is Jesus doing? At this point, he's just walking around healing people and preaching. He's, he's not killing the Romans. He's not overthrowing the pagans. He's not destroying all of the enemy nations. He's not wiping all the bad people off of the earth. He's not doing any of those things. All he's doing is preaching and healing. What on earth are you doing, Jesus? And I love how John struggles with that. We're going to see that the disciples struggle with this all throughout the Gospels, even into the early parts of the book of Acts, of saying, Jesus, you're not the kind of Jesus we expected. And again, I love how human that is. It's sinful. It's so sinful, but how human. We do the same thing with God where we hold Him accountable to our own standards and not to His. To our own idea of goodness and not to His. To our own idea of fairness and not to His. How many times have we said that, right? God, that's not fair. Really? He is justice. I I think He would have a good idea of what fair actually is. I mean, call me crazy. But again, how often we find that the Lord Christ perhaps doesn't match up to the things that we don't agree with. I'll be candid with you, I think one of the areas that we tend to probably struggle with with, uh, this the most are the areas where we have our little kind of secret special sins, and namely the ones that we like to use to judge other people that say they're bad people and we're good people. The ones that we use to kind of pat ourselves on the back to make us feel better about ourselves. The ones where we get to be like the Pharisee and say, well, at least I'm not like that person. At least I'm I'm not like that fool. At least I'm not like that. It's intriguing because those areas where we say, well, at least I'm not like that, uh, more often than not, we're saying, at least I'm not like Jesus. Not because necessarily Jesus is like that, because Jesus is not condemning in that way. He's certainly not that. Interestingly, though, John runs into this moment where uh, either because of his intense pain and suffering, he begins to doubt, or perhaps because Jesus doesn't line up to the way that he would expect him to line up, he doesn't look the way that he would expect him to look, he then kind of asks the question, are you the one? Jesus, are you a liar or are you the real deal? Who are you? And again, for New Testament Christians, Jesus' answer seems a bit odd. Namely because we don't read the top two-thirds of that wall, we read the bottom six and a half feet. Jesus answers and says, go, tell John this, tell them what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised up, poor have good news preached to them. Go tell them that, which is intriguing because that's exactly what John heard that made him question. It would seem like Jesus is perhaps even being a little bit of a troll, isn't he? John, all the things that you already heard that made you question who Jesus is, go back and tell him all those things he already knows. The bit that we're perhaps missing, again, not being brilliant Old Testament scholars, is that Jesus is paraphrasing and hinting at Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. Two passages written specifically about the Messiah and written specifically about how the Messiah's ministry would be marked by these specific activities. 
So what Jesus is actually doing is far more clever because here you have John that's filled with doubt, that's beginning to wonder if his suffering is worth it, who's beginning to wonder if Jesus is who he says he is, and what is the response that Jesus gives? He takes him to the promises of God in the Old Testament. Look, John, you you doubt who God is. You doubt that God is who he says he is. You doubt that Jesus is who he says he is. You know where the answer is, John? It's in the Word of God. It's not in your emotions. It's not even in your faith. It's it's not in how you're perceiving your circumstances. Your answer resides first and foremost with All sorts of truth and reality resides in the promises of God. Now, interestingly, Jesus actually is taking these promises of God that are in the future tense in Isaiah and switching them to the present tense in Matthew. Look, all of those things that you were expecting to have happen, they're happening now. I might humbly suggest that for many of us, this is a habit and a practice that would benefit our souls immensely, is to actively read the Old Testament, to read those passages that perhaps we don't read with maybe quite as much regularity as we ought to, and then to think about those promises as being written specifically for the people of God and being fulfilled in King Jesus. to meditate on God's promises. To meditate on His goodness. You might not know it, but that's part of why the ministry of this church is constructed in such a way that we use the Psalms with great regularity. Why do we pray through the Psalms every three years making a lap, more or less? Why do we have the call to worship from the Psalms? And I would say probably 47 out of 52 weeks a year. Because so many of those Psalms are written specifically to help the people of God engage the promises of God, but to engage the promises of God within the specific confines of our difficulties. Whether that be engaging God's promises through physical illness, by the way, that's in the Psalms. Engaging God's promises with the loss of friends or family, it's in there. Engaging God's promises in light of betrayal. Engaging God's promises in light of success. Engaging God's promises in light of enemies that mock or ridicule or seek destruction. It's all in there. Contemplating how God is faithful to His people and keeps His promises in goodness and in grace. I think it's also really intriguing Jesus' response here to John. John, the greatest man in human history, at this point literally probably the single most knowledgeable man about the Messiah on planet earth apart from Jesus himself, comes to him with doubts. 
Do you notice what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't scold him. In fact, actually, if you read throughout the entirety of the New Testament, that is one activity that is almost never done. In fact, actually, I can only think of one place in the entirety of the New Testament anywhere that doubters are ever scolded. In fact, almost all of the places where doubt is mentioned, it's mentioned with kindness and tenderness and compassion. That's why so much of my pastoral ministry is built out of the book of Jude. It deals with the same idea. Showing tenderness toward those on, who have doubts, who struggle. Interestingly, Jesus only blasts the people that don't think they have any problems at all. <laughs> the ones who acknowledge, man, I struggle. The ones who have doubts, who wonder about God's goodness. The one who wonder about God's promises. The Lord is tender with those people. It's the people who think it all, they have it all figured out and have it all together. Those are the ones that Jesus lays into. such an interesting thing how marvelous our God is, how tender he is. Here you have a man in a moment, kind of critical moment of faith, a crisis of belief in the Lord is so tender to him. And then interestingly, rather than just capturing his worst moment, his greatest sin, and enshrining it in scripture forever, Jesus does some of the most loving and marvelous follow-up immediately following After explaining who Jesus is in verses 4 through 6, what does he do? 7 and 8, he acknowledges that this is a moment of weakness. I love it. Jesus himself is explaining, look, John's a good man. It's a moment of weakness. Don't judge the entirety of his life by it. What does he say? He says, look, the crowd stand there judging him after the disciples have left, uh, John's disciples have left, and he says to the crowd, what did you expect to see? Do you think John actually is a, uh, a reed blowing in the wind? Do you think John actually is this puny sissy little man who's only wearing really soft clothing and is, uh, you know, a soft man in his own right? No, John is man of mans. He is a man amongst men. He is the great man, and he is sturdy and strong. He's a marvelous man. Verses 7 and 8 are an endorsement of the character of John the Baptist. This is an endorsement of the ministry of John the Baptist. What did you expect to see? Did you expect to see some terrible car accident? Right? For me this morning, driving in this morning, there was a massive car accident right up here on uh, uh, Gold Hill Road in 77. Uh, I was early enough on that the ambulance was still there, and I think they were still tending to people. Certainly, it was a gruesome sort of wreck. And let's be honest. Every time we drive past one of those wrecks, we all have a little bit of severed head syndrome, where we don't actually want to see the severed head, but we can't not look, can we? Right? You always kind of slow down a little bit and peek, like, I don't, I don't want to look, but I got to look, but I don't want to look, but I got to look. And there's an essence, that's what the crowd is doing. They're trying to kind of uh, destroy the character of John and say, look, he's this puny little guy. We, we don't want to want to acknowledge him, but maybe we do, but maybe we don't. And they're kind of in confusion. And Jesus is like, No. It's a moment of weakness. It's a moment of failure. It is what it is. He's a good man with a good ministry. I love that endorsement. 9 and 10, he explains the theological significance of what John represents to the people of God. 
What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, he is a prophet. But actually, he's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. John the Baptist is actually the last of the prophets. But functioning more than just a prophet of the Old Testament kind, he is the messenger uh, here uh, referencing Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord will, whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The, the messenger of God would precede the arrival of the Messiah. And what's Jesus saying? John the Baptist is that guy. He's not just a prophet. He was the messenger designed to announce the arrival of the Messiah because Jesus is the Messiah. Explicitly stating it, he is the Messiah. And then verse 11, this is, I think, my favorite out of all of it. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This ringing endorsement. He's the greatest man that's ever lived. But yet, Jesus immediately follows it with the other half. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because Jesus is making a very clear distinction here. John the Baptist is the greatest prophet. He's the greatest man of the Old Testament. He's the last of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus can give this ringing endorsement to say, look, there's, there's no greater man than John the Baptist, but why is it that the least will be greater than him? Because the least of the kingdom of God of the New Testament, those that understand the arrival of the Messiah who are part of his ministry, not looking forward, but looking present. I mean, it's a marvelous way to think of it in, in this sense. John the Baptist is, you know, one of the great heroes of the faith. I mean, to think about everything that his faith cost him, it cost him every ounce of comfort. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore hard clothes. He ate hard food. He had a difficult life. His ministry was simply proclaiming sin. You're a sinner and you need to repent. He didn't have a solution for it yet. The primary content of his ministry is just saying, you're a sinner and you need to change. That is a really hard job for a pastor, I'm not going to lie. He's the, the most manly of all means, the great prophets. But interestingly, Jesus is acknowledging that the little ones in this room that know Jesus as their current Savior, who have the Spirit of God indwelling them, who've already been saved by the work on the cross, surpass John's greatness. Because what Jesus is giving here is a lecture not about John or even a lecture about you or me. What Jesus is giving here is a lecture about Jesus. Jesus is greater than anyone else. He's greater than everything else. He is the Lord God himself redeeming mankind. Everything connected to greatness is defined in relationship to him. So John's the greatest man ever before the arrival of Jesus, but even our little one surpasses greatness. Verse 12, one of the more difficult verses in the entirety of the book of Matthew, it's uh, stumped commentators and translators. Um, it, it's a hard one. The NIV, I think, probably honestly butchers it a bit. The ESV, I think, nails it. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence. The kingdom of God is growing, but it's growing with intense difficulty. People hate it. Everywhere that Jesus' ministry goes, there are those that love it, but there are those that hate it, and it's only going to get worse. Even at this point, John the Baptist is already imprisoned and will die in just a matter of months. The kingdom is growing, though, and it will continue to grow, and it will arrive in fullness. All right, well, what do I do with this, okay? Thanks, Michael. You've explained to me thus far the chapter. It seems a bit of a strange sermon, but okay, great. I appreciate that. What do I do with this? Well, interestingly, Jesus is going to make kind of two applications as he rounds this out for the crowds around him. As you as a witness, as a a, a crowd member, so to speak, what are you supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, verses 13 and 14 and 15, he calls all those who listen to actually not just listen to the words he says, but to believe them. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. Right? All of the Old Testament uh, paved the way, uh, proclaiming the arrival of the Messiah all the way up until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is this uh, Malachi chapter 4, the representative of Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated. Uh, he is the representative of Elijah who is to come. That's Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. But if you're ready, if you actually have the ears to hear, if, if you're willing to listen, Jesus is the linchpin of all of human history. Everything from creation all the way through until his arrival was building to the arrival of Christ. Is building to the incarnation. Was building to a manger. Was building to angels singing in a field to shepherds. It was building to a poor carpenter and his young new wife who had never known each other, but yet she was pregnant. It was building to the arrival of the one who would fix sin. And the reality is, Jesus is calling his people not just to hear that message, but to believe it, to give up control of their own lives, to obey it, and to have faith in him. And I would suspect that for many of us, this is the challenge that uh, I think is very common for those uh, living in the South and in the, the Bible Belt, particularly for, I would suggest, children in the church. Children in the church particularly, I know because I was that person. You grow up hearing about Jesus all of the time, but simply hearing about him is not enough. It's not enough to be around Jesus. You have to know him. Secondly, Jesus gives an application here in verses 16 through 19 where he critiques the culture of the day. And interestingly, their culture sounds very similar to ours. What shall I compare this generation? What does he say looking at the culture around him? It's a culture that sounds just like children sitting out on the playground, playing with their friends, saying, we were all happy 
but you didn't join in. We were enjoying the silliness of life. We were enjoying the frivolity of childhood. We were enjoying all of the silly and foolish and stupid things that kids get to enjoy. But you, God's people, didn't join in with the simple pleasures of the world. And put it in kind of modern affluence, we would say, well, look, the world would be calling to the church saying, look, you're not enjoying the things that we are. You're not, you're not participating in our luxury cars and our luxury lifestyle. You're not participating in our world that's constantly pushing forth our pleasures and our uh, sexual dalliances. It's, it's, you're not participating in a world and a culture that is designed just to make me feel good. Instead, we hold a different standard. We live a life that is designed around the kingdom of God, not around a kingdom that passes, a kingdom that fades away. He highlights this with John. Look, John came, he lived this very rigorous lifestyle. He didn't eat and drink and participate in these things. And they said, look, he's got a demon. Jesus, on the other hand, he uh, was constantly at parties. His life was marked by joy and presence in places that we might not have expected him to be. And what do they say to him? Well, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is acknowledging, look, the world is going to hate you. (laughs) My big concern here, though, is that the church is always at her most healthy and always is at her fastest kind of type of growth when she looks the most different from the world around. Right? Again, you can study any of the revivals in in church history. Go to Acts, read the book of Acts, the first revival. As the Holy Spirit spread out through the land, you can read any of them. The Reformation and... Uh, Europe spreading into England and other places. You can read it as uh, the Westminster uh, standards and such made their way into the U.S. and the early founding fathers. You can read it about in the uh, Great Welsh Revival. You can read it about in the First Great Awakening. You, you can read about any of the great works of the Spirit of God inside His church. And interestingly, it's always when the church is the most different, not the most the same. And again, I've mentioned this before, but I do think it's one of the great benefits of 2020 is the Lord has handed us a little bit of a mirror to look at ourselves and say, you know what? If I'm going to be honest, I, I probably look a bit more like the culture than I might like to admit. And my values might match the pagans' values a bit more than I might like to admit. And the things that give me joy might be earthly things a bit more than I might like to admit. Rather than being the kind of man or woman that would be marked as one of greatness, one who is committed to the Lord Jesus in a way that is transformative and life-altering, I suspect many of us might actually have to say that our life is marked more by just sometimes silly childhood games. And it would be appropriate that we would contemplate this and confess this. 
confess that we have fallen short of God's perfect command and that we're not the kind of people that the Lord wants us to be, the kind of people that He commands us to be, and certainly not the kind of people we want to be. To repent of our sin and ask that He would change us. And again, I I love, Jesus never scolds anyone here, well, at least not the people that are trying. He scolds those who don't think they have anything wrong. Might it be that this portion of the body of Christ would acknowledge, we're not perfect. In fact, we fall far short with great regularity. I have let you down. I will let you down should the Lord allow for me to pass to you even through tomorrow. But might it be that that weakness is where we find our strength, confessing our sins, finding transformation in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that while we are uh, weak, King Jesus is so strong. We bless you in his name. Amen.